Well, I guess after that warm welcome, my introduction is actually superfluous, really. But um, <laughs> nevertheless, it's good to see so many of you uh, here. And can I make a special mention that uh, we're delighted that uh, the Mayor of London, uh, Sadiq Khan, uh, is here with us uh, as well. So uh, we're very pleased. And um, uh, someone is pointing. Yes, Sadiq Khan is here. I think he deserves a round of applause. The ever-popular Sadiq Khan, I should have said. <laughs> uh, we're delighted also that we have the uh, current director, Dame Minouche uh, uh, Shafiq, uh, the previous director, uh, Tony Giddens, many distinguished guests, um, alumni, students, you're all very welcome as well. In actual fact, as you can see, it's a packed theatre. We could, let me say, have filled this theatre three times over uh, so if you didn't actually sell your tickets on eBay, you missed an opportunity, okay? Uh, but uh, the, I should also say that the lecture is being live-streamed, uh, so I should welcome those uh, watching through the, their own computers. And the lecture will subsequently be available uh, to download um, as a podcast. As you can see, we have uh, a lot of press uh, interest, surprisingly. <laughs> uh, TV, cameras uh, around the place, etc. Uh, and of course, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to join me to give a warm welcome uh, to our speaker. Although, I must say, I suspect that when some of our Eurosceptic press uh, report it in the morning, I suspect it's going to be reported as modest applause. <laughs> so we, we take that into account uh, as well. Now, tonight's lecture is part of our public lecture programme, and I think uh, the public lecture programme at the LSE is one of those very special things about being a member of the school. I think for students, it's part of that extra dimension of studying here. It's something which gives that extra uh, dimension to um, the community life of the school. But it is also a lecture which is hosted by the Institute for Public Affairs and by the uh, European Institute, and it's part of our series of uh, the LSE programme on Brexit. So in a few weeks' time, for example, we'll be pleased to be hosting uh, the former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, and we expect other events during the academic year as well. But of course, tonight we're talking about the future of Europe post-Brexit. And our speaker, of course, is very well placed to be talking on this uh, topic. He has, for example, <coughs> written a number of books which have been translated into many languages, including English. And the titles of the books uh, indicate his political uh, vision. The United States of Europe for Europe, most recently, Europe's last chance, why European states should form a more perfect union. So you can uh, appreciate uh, his uh, standpoint. But of course, Guy Verhofstadt has also had a political career which has placed him very much at the centre of European uh, affairs. Minister and then Prime Minister in Belgium, uh, President of the European Council on one occasion, 
member of the European Parliament since 2009, leader of the Liberal Alliance in the European Parliament. You might think, therefore, that Guy Verhofstadt politically has done it all. Well, not quite. In 2004, it was suggested that Guy Verhofstadt might become president of the European Commission. It was immediately then uh, reported that the British Prime Minister at the time, Tony Blair, uh, blocked the nomination for fear that Guy Verhofstadt would be too pro-European or too uh, federalist for British uh, sensibilities. Guy Verhofstadt... <laughs> His, su his subsequent laments, quote, if it hadn't been for Tony Blair, will, I think, be a lament that many at the LSE would appreciate with a wider residence, uh, a wider connotation uh, across many different uh, fields. Uh, but we're delighted that uh, he's able to uh, join us. Of course, at the moment, he is the European Parliament's lead on Brexit, and the European Parliament will... Uh, have to confirm any Brexit deal. So I suspect that's why we're going to be listening to his words uh, particularly carefully uh, here in London. Uh, Guy has agreed to speak for about 30 minutes. That should give us uh, plenty of time for questions and answers uh, subsequently. Let me then simply ask that you uh, put your mobile phones to mute. Uh, you can, if you wish... Uh, follow us on Twitter. There is a hashtag on the screen. You can follow us on uh, social media. Uh, but let's uh, begin. So can you please join me in giving a very warm LSE welcome to our speaker this evening, Guy Verhofstadt. Thank you. Well, there is more applause here than in the European Parliament, I can tell you. So, uh, that's, uh, and, but it was not very nice to, to all these bad memories that you have uh, uh, brought up. Because, but it's true, it's typical uh, European. Uh, it's like uh, uh, when it should be a little bit of following comparison that uh, in, the, in, the, in the Catholic Church, when they nominate a pope, that they say, not too Catholic, eh? not too, uh, that is not... Uh, that. Uh, but, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much, and I will also, uh, I think, very much uh, uh, the Mayor of London uh, for his uh, presence uh, this evening. It's a pleasure uh, to be here uh, with you today. It's not my first time that I, I am in this fantastic audience. Uh, I think the third time uh, all, already. Um, but I have to tell you, I, it is a little bit surrealistic that I am giving a speech about the future of Europe here in London, uh, the capital of a country uh, that is about to leave the Union, while then Prime Minister May gave her speech on Brexit uh, in a European city, uh, in Florence. And I can tell you, as citizens of Florence, the last thing what they're going to do is to leave the Union. So, but I know why I'm here in London. And it is because my good friend, uh, Paul de Grauwe, who is professor here uh, in economics in the, at the university, uh, invited me. And I can't uh, say no uh, to Paul. Uh, uh, who uh, also, uh, we share a little bit of a, a political career. I, I, I don't know if it is the best memory uh, of his career. But I think um, 
I have to tell you that I also know why Theresa May gave her speech in Florence. I presume that I know it. I think she chose Florence because Florentine politics in the 15th century <laughs> made her feel at home, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, backstabbing... <laughs> You know, backstabbing, betrayal, noble families fighting for power, and, and so on and so on. So I think that it is uh, an environment that she recognized uh, uh, very well. But uh, let me come back. This was a joke, eh? so because uh, yeah, well, I, I say it for the press, because tomorrow in the sun and so on, I, I see already uh, uh, the titles of the, uh, of, of the articles. But let me come back to the content of the uh, Prime Minister's uh, speech, uh, Mrs. May said in, in Florence uh, that, and I quote her, uh, throughout its membership, uh, the United Kingdom has never totally felt at home being in the European Union. That was literally what she said in her speech. I have to tell you that could have been a quote of Paul de Grau. Uh, because also my friend Paul believes that yeah, Britain was never a member with its whole heart. And always one foot in, one foot out, sometimes blocking, sometimes, no, always complaining. But uh, for once, I have to tell you, I don't agree with his reasoning. While this is true, I think, uh, for most uh, British politicians and also for most uh, English newspapers, I think this is not the case for what seems to be today, again, a majority of British citizens. It's true, it's a majority now. It was only 48% of people voted to remain during the referendum. But I think that even 48% is not a minority you can ignore. Because doing politics, in my point of view, is trying to take all big opinions on board and to find compromises, not to poke up differences. I think it was John Stuart Mill teaches us that democracy... Democracy, ladies and gentlemen, is not a dictatorship of the majority. And certainly not on fundamental issues. On issues of vital interest, national interest. And I think membership of the Union is, I think, a vital national issue and interest. And that on these issues, the view and the wishes of, of in fact, every significant group of citizens uh, need to be taken uh, on board. And I see this, I can tell you, I, in the thousands, yeah, thousands of letters and mails uh, I receive, uh, I read how attached to so many British citizens, hundreds of thousands, I think even millions of them, they are still cherish their European identity and they want to keep their European citizenship. But I agree with at least one sentence in the speech of Mrs. May. At the very beginning, at the very beginning, she referred to the Renaissance as a, a period of history that defined what it meant to be European. Well, that's exactly what the European Union is all about. The European Union, ladies and gentlemen, is far more than a peace process after the Second World War, far more than the Franco-German reconciliation alone. The European Union is in all about civilization. It's, in fact, the political translation of that civilization, of that European common culture and values. That is what is the European Union about. And more important than our common past, I think, 
And that is in the heart of the European project, we have a common political language. Our philosophic uh, references are all the same. We read the same books. Our reference point are John Locke. Our reference point are Montesquieu, Immanuel Kant. David Hume was not only a Scottish uh, philosopher, not only a British philosopher, above all, he was uh, the father of skepticism, not of Euroscepticism, of skepticism. <laughs> and uh, who shaped, in fact, the thinking of so many generations of Europeans. And if, in fact, is the same is true for, for, for other areas like literature, for theatre, for architecture. If you travel, for example, from the Irish Sea all over the continent, all the way to uh, the Volga, so much further than the European Union of today, well, you will find the same buildings, the same styles, Art Nouveau, Art Deco, Modernism. And this common culture is nothing high-bro, not just for the elite, it has impregnated our thinking. Let me give you one example. When we were all impatient for Britain to trigger Article 50 after the referendum, I didn't use the saying, waiting for Hodeau, not once, but several hundreds of times. And the famous theatre piece of Samuel Beckett has become, yes, a European concept. So the reality of the European civilization is also the reason I have to tell you why I'm fighting for European citizenship as a translation towards the citizens, what does it mean to belong to Europe and European civilization? And for me, being a European citizen, a citizen is, is not the byproduct of your nationality. Because you are by accident born in one of our 28 member states. For me, European citizenship is the expression that we belong to the same European community, to the same European society. And you know that British citizens uh, will lose their European citizenship and that for many of them, this will happen against their will. And I think that the fact that hundreds of thousands, I think even millions, want to keep their European citizenship is the proof, first of all, we have to take that in account, and secondly, is the proof that the European project is about much more than the single market, much more than the common currency, all very good things, eh? don't get me wrong, but that's not the essence, in fact, of our European project. The essence is, in fact, the understanding inside Europe that identities are not simple, are not straightforward. Then you cannot do politics in categorizing identities, that they are multilayered, that they are complex, and moreover, that, they are, that there are, in fact, as many identities as there are people in the world. So criticizing people for wanting to keep that European identity, accusing them of split allegiance is binary, is old-fashioned. I think it's reductionist view on identity. I think it's perfect uh, possible, but I, I look to the mayor who has more experience to be a Londoner, English, British and European at the same time. There is no contradiction. And it has nothing to do with split allegiance. So my message uh, in the beginning of my intervention, watch out. Watch out, beware of politicians who want to define your identity. The only reason they do so is to categorize people. 
to reduce you to your nationality, your ethnicity, your religion, and split allegiance are two words that belong to the language of states that are, in my opinion, totalitarian and not of democracies, not of democracies like Britain. In all democracies, people define their own allegiance, define themselves how British and how European they feel, and not the Minister of Foreign Affairs, if I may say so. But let me come back to the, the talk of today, Brexit. I have to tell you very honestly, and I said it already um, a few times, but I want to repeat it here in London, that I continue to believe that Brexit is a very negative project. That it is in fact a waste of time and energy. The destruction of a strong political bond that made people on both sides of the channel richer, freer than ever before. But we are Democrats. We have to respect the outcome of that referendum. And moreover, we have to implement it, and that is exactly what Europe will do. And also will establish a new relationship, a new relationship between the European Union and the UK that hopefully will be beneficial for everybody, for both. And if you ask me the question, yeah, is there really, really, really nothing positive you can say about Brexit? Well, I'm going to say yes. There is something positive. It has opened people's eyes on the continent. It would have given, um, if I would have given um, Professor Hiv the same speech one year ago, I would have been, it would have been a depressive one. And you would go out all depressive. Since Brexit, I see that the mood has reversed. That in fact, yeah, in a certain way, the, the European Union regained popularity. Note that people are less critical now towards the Union, I should say, on the contrary, but they want to reform Europe, not to leave Europe, not to destroy it. You know, everybody expected, let's be honest, after the Brexit, a type of a domino effect. And everybody talked about the Frexit and the Dexit and the Nexit and a number of other exits. And what happened was quite uh, yeah, the opposite. What happened was that in Austria, People voted for Van der Bellen, who was the pro-European candidate in a third round. I never well understand why there was this third round uh, in Austrian elections. But they voted for Van der Bellen, and 300,000 votes went from the candidate who wanted to take Austria out of the, Euro, out of the European Union towards the pro-European candidate. And that happened a few months after Brexit. And in the Netherlands... A little bit later, it were the pro-European parties who won the election. It was not Heert Wilders, uh, who got 13%, one tree, and who wanted to lead uh, Holland out of the Euro and out of the European Union. It were the pro-European parties who won the most seats there. Also a number of months after Brexit. And in France, we have all followed it, two-thirds of the French citizens voted for Emmanuel Macron and for his pro-European project. The same Emmanuel Macron, now president of the French Republic, as you know and as you have heard, gave two days ago a speech at the Sorbonne uh, University uh, in Paris, a university almost as good as LSA. Uh, can, uh, <laughs> See, it's true, it's older. 12th century, 19th century, there's quite a difference of age. 
Well, I think he has uh, given a, an impressive account. An impressive account on which direction Europe should go. He spoke about the reform of the Eurozone, the establishment of a European Defence Union, the introduction of a European Border and Coast Guard, the European Department of Justice, a European Minimum Wage, a real European Energy Union. But he spoke also about other things, uh, like the need for multilingual education in Europe. And it was a long list of real European constructive proposals that lasted, I think, one and a half hour, even longer than Jeremy Corbyn at his party conference last week, and that says all as we know. So today, today, I want to highlight, in fact, from that two specific proposals that show what has changed since Brexit on the issue of the future of the European Union. That there has been a fundamental shift in the thinking about Europe in the heads of a number of uh, people and leaders in Europe. And that is not to look anymore to Europe and the European Union as a bunch of nation states, but as a genuine political community, as a democracy on continental scale. And two proposals that I well, I already defended that a, a number of years ago, but uh, nobody believed to be uh, realistic, uh, to our dreams, and, and that will never uh, realize themselves, are proof of that. The first proposal is the call, you have seen that, I hope, for transnational lists. The idea to turn the European Union in one big constituency and to give to all citizens in Europe two ballots one to choose their own representative of their country in the parliament, and a second one to elect uh, a number of politicians on the European level, what, in my opinion, will make European politics more democratic and what will lift, in fact, this European democracy on a continental scale, what we absolutely need. And the second proposal also that uh, shows that uh, we go into a direction where we see uh, the European democracy as something new and, and, and not a bunch of nation states uh, but uh, a real political community is his proposal to reshape the European Commission into a new, small, effective uh, European government of only 12 to 15 ministers. And he said, if that means that France doesn't have a commissioner, so be it. I can tell you that's a revolution in itself if it is said by a French president. <laughs> no, really. He said also that European sovereignty is more important, that was when he was uh, still candidate, than national sovereignty. Normally you're already disqualified uh, in France if you say something like that. Not this time. Not this time. But don't misunderstand me. We will need naturally much more than these two changes. Transnationalists to build up European democracy on the continental scale. Another way of dealing and governing the European, a small government instead of a, a European Commission in which every member state automatically have to be represented. It will meet uh, far more changes than this. What the European Union really needs is naturally a big overhaul. Uh, because at the root cause of all our problems, uh, of our so-called I call it a polycrisis because at the same time you have the, still the aftermath of the financial crisis, you have the problems with the migration flows, you have the geopolitical weakness of our continent. There is Brexit, 
Because that's a failure, let's be honest. It's a, when a, an important country like Britain breaks away, it's a failure. So I think that the root cause of all these problems, of the so-called polycrisis, is political, is institutional. The problem in Europe is its wrong political architecture and the fact that we have not fully implemented the basic ideas of our founding fathers that they, that they proposed in the aftermath of the Second World War in the 50s. The problem, in fact, let me tell you that very bluntly, the Union is in fact not a Union. It's a loose confederation of nation-states today. And all based on the unanimity rule. And on top of that, yeah, we don't have in fact one European Union. We have at least a dozen of European unions. The European Union of Schengen. European Union of the European Patent, European Union of the Prim Convention, of the Euro, of EFTA, of Europol, of the Fiscal Compact, of the Stability Mechanism. And every time, uh, every country, like going into a restaurant, can pick and choose uh, on the menu what they want and what they don't want. And it makes it even more complicated because uh, from time to time there are some, members, uh, some uh, countries outside the European Union, who participate in European politics, why it is not necessary that all member states participate in the same European politics. You have to know, I'm always giving the following comparison uh, to make it clear what the problem is. Imagine one moment, five minutes, the following thing, that is that the United States of America should be governed like the European Union today. How should it work? First of all, we should not have one Obama or one Trump, but three Obamas and worse, three Trumps. That should be the case. So, uh, because there is no one real leadership in union. And, and secondly, most important, America will be governed by the 50 governors of the 50 states who are gathering together from time to time, five times a year, in Washington, all 50, to decide on every policy of the United States. Syria, what we do. Korea, what we do, climate change, what is our policy? Coming together and one governor has the possibility, even of the smaller state, to block the whole decision and the whole process. What currently happens in the Union? And what's more, if the United States was governed like the European Union, well, yeah, states could uh, opt out on crucial policy domains. For example, California saying, well, this dollar is a fine currency, but we like more the old Spanish peseta that we used until the mid of the 19th century, because that was the case in California. Or, for example, Florida saying, well, the American border and coast guard, no, not for me, I'm going to do it myself. Or, for example, an, another state, uh, whatever, the Texas, for example, saying, well, the FBI, nice organization, but I'm going to take an opt-out on this. I don't uh, participate in this. That's not, uh, I'm going to do it myself. And everybody, we all, should say these Americans are nuts. <laughs> well, that's exactly, and we should say that can never work. Well, that's exactly how Europe works today, or better, from time to time, doesn't work today. And there is the problem. And that's also the reason, uh, Paul, I think that you will agree with me, why, to give another example, in the field of economics, so, uh, I'm a lawyer, so that's now very uh, dangerous to do that before an uh, economic professor. 
why America emerged so much earlier from the crisis than we did. Even though the crisis started there, in the US, America, with his political institutions, launched, in fact, in nine months, not more than that, an impressive three-stage rocket to deal with that financial crisis. Immediately launched TARP, Troubled Asset Relief Program, 400 billion of dollars to clean up the banks and, and the insurance companies uh, in the US. Then followed by a second uh, uh, stage, the Recovery and Reinvestment Act, that is 900 billion of dollars investment program covering 2009, 2019, it's still in place. And then three, the support by the Federal Reserve Board, quantitative easing immediately from the beginning for a staggering amount of 1.3 trillion. We did it also, quantitative easing, yeah, to avoid deflation at the end, not in the beginning, to stimulate the economy. So that is what in the US happens. There is institutions, whatever the majority is, the Democrats were in place, uh, the Republicans were in place. Then came the Obama administration. The Democrats took it over. They did it, nine months. And in the meanwhile, we saw in Europe exactly the opposite. We have still not fully overcome the fallout of the financial crisis of 2008. And we are still debating the right strategy. Is it growth or is it austerity? Is it Krugman or is it Ferguson? Or maybe, Paul, I can say, is it Paul de Graube? or only rain, so uh, to make a, compar a comparison. And the problem is not that there are people like uh, Krugman or Ferguson or Rehn or De Graue. The problem is that in an intergovernmental system, as we have today, if half of the political leaders in Europe, half of the political leaders are saying that that is the solution for the problem, and half of the political leaders in the council think that it is the other way around, nothing is happening. There is a standstill for years. In a communitarian system, I call it a federal system, I know that is uh, the, the word not to use, and I'm always saying, oh, what is the problem? The most uh, seen as the most powerful nation worldwide is a federal state, no? US? And today seen as the most effective uh, European state in Europe is a federal state, it's Germany. So what is the problem? They say, yeah, we have to do like that. Uh, they, they have good results. But when it concerns them to apply the institutional setup, then we have problems. But in a communitarian system, the majority shows the way. That is the difference with an intergovernmental system that blocks. And even when it's a way I don't like, it's in any way better than no way at all. And it is our intergovernmental system, our unanimity rule, that makes that 10 years after the outbreak of the crisis, all European banks, for the, uh, to give only one example, are still weak, are still not cleaned up, and also that the Eurozone is still not reformed and needs to be reformed. And it's even clearer when I talk about another area, and that's my next example, that is our di uh, defense policy. It was Jean-Claude Juncker who said in the State of the Union of, uh, of, of uh, a few uh, weeks ago that by 2025, we need a full-fledged European defense union. We need it. And NATO wants it. That was what he said. I said, uh, finally. Because why? Well, why combined the 28 European armies in Europe spent more or less 40, 
of the American defense budget. And some people can say, yeah, that is, um, that is less. Yeah, true. But it's not bad given that America is a big spender on military budget. And it's still three times much as Russia, for example. It's the second biggest budget worldwide. And the reality, that's the input, because now we're going to talk uh, with you about the output. We can only do 10, some people are saying, 12% of America's military operations. Certainly not more than what the Russian army is capable of doing. And I'm only a lawyer, I have to tell you, by training. But even I can uh, have a sense of basic maths. I was also a minister of budget, and then you need that a little bit, naturally. <laughs> even when I'm always saying... The only thing what the Minister of Budget has to know is the word no. All the rest is not necessary uh, when you do it. But a little bit of basic maths are useful. Well, the reality, if you put 40, 42, 45% of money, and you can only do 10 or 12% of the operations for the American army, that means that you are four times less efficient. That is the reality. And that is normal because the 28 member states do 28 times the same thing. And it's true... We have an inflation of bilateral regional cooperation. The Benelux, Scandinavia, the Baltics, the Franco-German Brigade, the Belgian-Dutch Navy, the Italian-French cooperation. But all these bilateral cooperations are merely, in fact, papering the cracks. What we really need uh, is a European Defence Union. Call it European Army, call it what you want, but that is the way forward. And these are only two examples that show that in parallel, I think, with Brexit, we need and we will start now a deep reform of the Union. And there is not a lack of preparation, I can tell you. There are already three papers, reports, on the future of the, Union, of the European Union that have been adopted by the European Parliament. There are seven reflection papers that have been adopted by the European Commission on different elements of the future of the European Union. Moreover, there are two interinstitutional reports. Interinstitutional, that means the three institutions together, Council, Commission and Parliament, on the financing of the Union and also on the governance of the Eurozone. So it's not that we don't know what to do. And on top of that now, I expect also that with uh, Macron launching its vision, also other political leaders will come out. In any way, in my point of view, what is necessary are the following building blocks. First of all, when we talk about Schengen, the European border and Coast Guard, to manage free movement, to make also a crucial step in a real European migration and asylum policy. And there, there is a lot of things to do because we have no European asylum policy. Dublin is the negation, I should say, of uh, a common European system putting the burden automatically on, on, on two countries uh, in uh, reality. And also with the necessary, yeah, the necessary instruments. Today we spent uh, uh, on border defense on the European level uh, the amount of 240 million euro. Yeah, uh, inside uh, uh, Homeland Security, that's the American counterpart for border management, it's $30 billion. You, know, you can compare. 
Secondly, European investigation and intelligence capacity, call it a European FBI or, or whatever. And, and why? Because every time when there is a terrorist attack, we see that different national intelligence and security agency had different pieces of the puzzle, but no one has really the oversight. FBI was created in the US in 1900 after the murder of McKinley, an American president, in a terrorist attack. And they said it cannot go further like that. We need to, for crimes that are trans-interstate, uh, to build something up. And that became uh, the FBI, who is now responsible for 200 uh, type of crimes. The same what happened, in, in fact, in, in Germany. The Bundeskriminalamt was only uh, a loose uh, coordination organ between, uh, uh, in fact, the lender who were responsible for policy. Today and after what happened uh, in München in the Olympic uh, uh, Games, it, it, it is upgraded to Bundeskriminalamt, who has autonomy to investigate, to gather intelligence, and so on and so on. Well, I think the same needs to be happen on the European level. Terrorists don't know any border. It are our police forces who still know borders in the exchange of their information. There is the European Defence Union, and I will not repeat what I said, uh, I explained it a few moments ago, that is crucial, certainly in a time where an American president is saying that we need to take uh, more our responsibility, and he's right in that respect. And I don't think that it is mainly by increasing the budget, by, by doing uh, what is needed, that is to create one community, so that we can, in fact, have far better results with the same money that we spend today. We need a government for the euro, one with uh, one minister of finance with a, a budget, a fiscal capacity, that is, uh, that's also uh, what the French president has said, has to be a multiple of the current uh, uh, budget, a budget that is financed, in my opinion, with own resources, instead of contributions for the member states, so that there is a direct link, so as in every democracy, between what the people are paying and the policies that are developed. And there is a control of them. There is, everybody says, yeah, no taxation without representation. Yeah, but representation without taxation, that's the world on his head. So we need to rethink also the whole euro governance because the system of today, in my opinion, doesn't work very well. A stability and growth pact, in other words, budgetary rules that are in fact... Uh, not always, not to say, uh, never applies, while the new uh, uh, Euro governance should, uh, in fact, another system with uh, member states who receive incentives to reform their labor market, their pension systems, their economies. And I have to tell you that um, on that specific issue, and I take uh, this opportunity to underline this, the last days there is a, a lot to do about the outcome of the German election on this uh, issue and uh, the result of the FDP, the, uh, the Liberal Party in Germany. It's true that they are very strict when it comes to the euro that they want that the rules to be applied. But I wonder too, why you have rules if you don't apply them? And the point is that I see no contradiction, in fact, between those who want to apply the rules what is in fact not really happening today, and those who want new governance for the Eurozone. It is exactly that new Euro governance that has to ensure that rules are applied, that reforms are made, and continue uh, like today, and putting our heads uh, in the sand is certainly not the way forward. And again, 
On top of that, and I want to do that here in, in London, the FDP is a part who is strongly anchored in the legacy of Hans-Dieter Genscher, is in favor for a European Defense Union, in favor of European investigation and security capabilities, in favor of transnational lists, and in favor of a decentralized federal Europe. So the point is a little bit different than has been uh, uh, described uh, the last uh, days. But talking about the FDP brings me in fact, to the ultimate question that we have to raise this evening, is it possible to deeply reform the European Union? Because that is what you hear. Yeah, there are fantastic ideas, but that is what we need. But yeah, it's it not going to happen. Well, I say yes. And the reason why I'm confident and optimistic about this is the fact that we did it already before. It's not the first crisis of Europe. In the past, in the 80s, you remember that maybe that had another name. It was not Euroscepticism, it was Eurosclerosis was the name at that moment that was used. That was the time that the European economy suffered from stagflation, the combination of, uh, in fact, uh, yeah, stagnation and inflation, low growth, high unemployment, rising debts. In the 80s, you remember, huh? fueled by this increase of the, of the prices of, uh, of energy. And in that uh, period, people were also very unhappy with the European project. And at that time, uh, as I said, it was called uh, Eurosclerosis. It lasted four years until there was a leader in Europe, that was Jacques Delors, who decided to, to do something about it and to launch something, not to pandering on the negative feelings, but by reforming the Union and by launching a positive project. And that was the idea of 1992 the launch of the internal market with billboards and so on, where he got rid of customs duties that companies had to pay to transport their goods from one country to the other, where he got rid of border controls for people also, and no more long waiting lines when you went uh, to another country. And he made it also possible for service providers to obtain one single license that allowed them then to do business everywhere in the European Union. That was the idea in the 80s, start 1992. And what happened, it was an enormous success. What happened was also that our small and medium companies everywhere in Europe started already before 92 to prepare themselves. It created 3% average of growth in that uh, period. And Jacques Delors didn't say, oh, people are unhappy with the Union, so we should give up on it. No, he said people are unhappy with the Union, so we should reform it. Make it work again. And the law had this offensive strategy which was still in the heart of the European project, this internal market. And in my opinion, that's also the strategy to follow today. A project, a vision that people can follow. The task of politicians is not to follow always what people say. No, to create a vision and to try to convince the people of that vision and of that prospect. And as in London here, I want to remind that Jacques Delors didn't do this alone. The mastermind behind the internal market was a Brit, Lord Cofield. He was the driving force behind that formidable project. And I want to quote Margaret Thatcher on that project, because normally she was not very lyric. But on that issue, yes. A single market, I quote, without barriers, visible or invisible, 
giving you direct and unhindered access to the purchasing power of over 300 million of world's wealthiest and most prosperous people, bigger than Japan, bigger than the United States, on your doorstep and with the channel tunnel to give you direct access to it. That was her defense of the European Union and of the internal market at that time. And I think even whatever will happen with Brexit, the European Union has the duty to build further on this legacy. Further on this legacy, and that means completing the internal market, completing it with what we have not now, energy markets, a capital market, a digital market, with single European supervisors and not 27 different national ones. Because if we look to digital companies and to new tech companies, they are all American or Asian. How is that possible? And we have the biggest market. Because if a young company has a new application and wants to launch it in Europe, he needs 28, 27, in fact, authorization to do so. And he needs to make a deal with more than 120 mobile operators before he can launch it. In the US, it's, it's very simple. And in other countries, your one authorization, FCA, is it called in the US? And you make a deal with three big mobile operators and you launch it. That's one of the reasons, for example, that Spotify, many people think it's an American company. In fact, it's a Swedish company who went to America because it was not possible to roll it out in the same conditions as in this other big market. So that we need to realize. And also with new, in my opinion, competition rules. New competition rules that no longer look at regional dominance. Typical for our competition, really, we're saying against a, a merger of two companies, ah, no, no, that cannot happen. Why? They're going to have a dominant position on the North Scandinavian market. What the hell of the North Scandinavian market? We are the European market. We need European champions who can become world companies. So that is not what is happening now. That is that on certainly digital and on high tech, they are all American, all Asian and not one European. And then finally also, and I think that uh, London will recognize that, speeding up free trade. Speeding up free trade arrangements. Certainly now that there is a doubt uh, from the American side and that protectionism is coming back, we need with the four corners of the world to trade. Japan, we are busy. India, we're going to launch. Brazil, New Zealand, Australia. And not wait for that. The world of tomorrow, ladies and gentlemen, and that is my message of this evening, is a world of empires, not longer a world of nation states. And let's hope that it are empires of the good and not empires of the bad, as we have seen in the past. And Europe, only a united Europe will be capable to play a role of significance, to put their standards on the table, to fight for their and your citizens' interest. And to make that happen... We need only one thing, in fact, because everything is in place. And Macron, in a certain way, has already shown the way. And I, to, to, to express what we need, I will use the, the words of, of a French revolutionary, Danton. And he said, first in French, de l'audace, encore de l'audace, toujours de l'audace. Audacity, more audacity, forever audacity. That is what we need. Thank you very much for you. Thank you for that uh, modest applause. <laughs>
we don't have uh, so much time, and I know that there are going to be many questions. I wonder if I could start off with I, one... More than 30 minutes, eh? Yeah, that's the same. It was worth it. I, uh, otherwise, I'd have uh, come across <laughs> to the microphone. Um, there's one issue, of course, which uh, you didn't touch on and would be of particular concern to the LSE community. Almost 40% of LSE faculty are EU non-UK origin. A similar percentage of our students is recruited from the rest of the European Union. As the Brexit negotiations uh, proceed, one issue of great sensitivity is the protection of EU citizens within the UK. Now, I appreciate that you will say that the European Court of Justice must have authority in this area. And the British Prime Minister has, of course, said that this is a red line. Can you see the outlines of any deal which would give uh, reassurance to EU citizens in the UK? Well, uh, first of all... Um it's impossible to predict what the outcome of a negotiation will be. But what I know is what uh, the European Parliament has put on the table and what for the Parliament, who has to give the green light at the end, uh, will be uh, absolutely uh, key. Um, and that is that uh, we want for the EU citizens, and also I want to, to, to tell that uh, the UK citizens living on the continent, we yes. don't make a difference between EU citizens living here and UK citizens living on the continent. There has to be symmetry. And there's no uh, reason why I say, ah, the EU citizens that interest us. What, UK citizens not long? No. We are a parliament. The parliament is made to defend the interests of the citizens. Uh, and I think uh, whatever nationality they have living on your, uh, uh, on your territory. So the, the main thing, what we are looking for, is a collective solution in which we simply keep the rights as they are. There are more than three million men of these uh, EU citizens living in, in, in Britain, a little bit more than one of UK citizens living on the continent. And we want is simply the continuation of the existing situation with the same rights, the same oversight, and so we have not to in invent anything. And that is the main difference of point of view with uh, the proposal of the UK government, who has done a proposal of a settled status, so a new concept in the UK immigration law, where um, it will be necessary that these 3 million people all fill in a request, not one by family. Yeah? If you are three family members, three requests. Five family members, four children, five family requests. In which uh, then the authorities... You need then to prove a number of things uh, before you can have this settled status. And on top of that, it's not covering all the rights that are covered today. So there is a huge difference on family reunification who will be made very difficult, if not even impossible, under that settled status, while we are saying well, we have to invent nothing at all. It's in place. Let's recognize for the three millions. Let's recognize for the more than one million UK, and we keep it as it is. Okay, so when you go to um, number 10, before you go back to uh, Belgium, you'll be saying to... I'm, I'm invited there? I don't know. No. 
Uh, you'll be saying to Theresa May, no compromise from the European Parliament position. There's no give on that issue. On that issue, she had made an opening uh, in, the, in the speech she did in, in Florence. Uh, the direct, uh, 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 yeah. the, the direct uh, um, influence of, that, uh, uh, of these rights uh, in, uh, in, in UK law. So there is a certain opening that has been made, but it's not uh, covering all the rights as we see it. And the main problem is, in my eye, uh, in my eyes, the, the problem that it is uh, not a collective solution, but an individual that will create an enormous administrative burden of millions of files with proofs. And on top of that, uh, the reason why I'm uh, also critical towards the system that has been put on the table by, by the UK government is the fact that we see already today practices of Home Office and from other departments where people were completely allowed to have some permits have already difficulties yes. or receive a letter of deportation of whatever. So that's the reason why uh, in the name of the Brexit steering group I wrote uh, uh, a letter to Amber Rudd to say, yeah, you know that this and this and this and this is happening today? Uh, that said, also on the continent, some member states uh, are also already uh, thinking uh, to take a number of measures. That has to stop until uh, the uh, withdrawal, uh, and that accounts for both sides. Uh, union law is union law and has to be applied fully. Okay. And what is not possible is, uh, is this type of practices, and that creates, yeah, what it creates is anxiety, fear, certainly not trust. Huh? If such uh, practices happening, then you say, yeah, what will that system be? Yeah, it will be a smooth system. Yeah, it isn't. We see it, what smooth it is. Okay. A uh, yeah, receiving a letter to go out of the country, that goes smooth, but that is not what we are looking for. Okay. When she went to uh, Florence, uh, she made an offer which was interpreted as paying 20 billion uh, euros. That's a big figure. Uh, is that enough to persuade you? Um, it's... Uh, the you could, get, you could get five university chancellors uh, from the UK with that kind of <laughs> the point. The point there is uh, simple. So she said two things were very important. That is that all the commitments uh, made by uh, uh, the UK as membership, uh, membership, uh, member state should be honoured. And uh, secondly, that nobody, uh, no other member state should receive less or pay more uh, because of, of Brexit. That were the two phrases. But we try now uh, to translate that in, in reality and uh, the, the, the problem is that until now, uh, the, the recognition that there has to be, uh, need to pay something is limited uh, to payments in 2019 and, and 2020. Well, everybody knows naturally that if you have made a commitment in 2019 or have made a commitment in 2018 or 2020, that can create and produce payments that are going above 2020. That's uh, one of the first lessons I learned when I became Minister of Budget. The okay. difference between a commitment and a payment. Commitment creates, do, you do it in one year, but the payments or the consequence of that commitment will go uh, over that year of the commitment. Not always, but mostly. And it's depending on what type of expenditure it, it is. So there we are. So that it's not solved, not solved at all. Okay, let's open it up to questions. We're going to take uh, three or four. Uh, could we take the uh, gentleman in the grey t-shirt here, at the, almost at the back. Could you just say who you are and then the question, please? Um, my name is Craig Nicholson. I'm a reporter with Research Europe. Um, what do you think, how do you think that e, the next EU multi-year budget should deal with the implications of the loss of the UK's contribution? Um, which programmes, if any, do you think should be cut? 
Um, and if I could have a second question, um, isn't there a contradiction in your views and you say that 48% is too big a minority to ignore, but doesn't your own plan for kind of a deeper EU ignore the even bigger minority in Austria who voted for that anti-European president? Wouldn't a more flexible EU be more democratic and better able to deal with the ebb and flow of nationalism? Okay, thanks. Let's take some questions uh, here. Could we take uh, Tony Giddens in the centre, please? Uh, well, good evening. Very good um, to see you here this evening at the LSE. Um, can you say a bit more about what you think the likely future of the euro is in the eurozone, and specifically whether you think Germany could be persuaded to accept an element of mutualisation of debt since at least a, a certain amount for the future of the euro, future development of the euro, will plainly depend on this and will also depend, obviously, upon a kind of renewed Franco-German cooperation, um, which has to at least be in the lead in trying to renew and extend the sort of temporary period of, of flourishing which the euro has at the moment. Okay, good, thank you. Um, and could we take the gentleman behind? Charles Grant from the Centre for European Reform. Um, Mr. Ofsted, we've had two very different reactions to Brexit in recent speeches. We've had the vision of Juncker and the vision of Macron. Juncker seems to be saying, let's make use of the fact that the British are no longer a break by moving forward together. Everybody should join the Euro Banking Union, Schengen and so on. Uniformity. While Macron is saying the lesson of Brexit is not everybody wants to do everything, we need more flexibility in our structures, some countries will move ahead, others won't move ahead, different tiers of membership, he's even suggested that in the long run Britain could join an outer rim EU. Which, which of these two visions do you think is better? Okay, thanks. Do you want to take those first? That's a lot, eh? Yeah. Um, so first of all, how look the f what will be the future... Uh, multi-annual financial framework and, and in relationship to Brexit. I don't know. What I know is that it depends a lot on, on what the transition period will be. Eh? Will there be a transition period? There is now a request from the UK side to ask for it. And uh, uh, how many years uh, will that be? And that will have naturally also an influence on the MFF eh? because uh, uh, if you stay in the single market and you stay in the customs union and you stay uh, in a number of policies in this transition period, in our point of view, a transition period can only be the continuation of the existing policies of today and, and not to reinvent uh, new uh, policies. That is impossible. Uh, that will also uh, influence that uh, multi-annual financial framework uh, of uh, the future. Um, on, on, on the, the second question, uh, I come back at the end uh, because I think that's a, 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 an, imp an important point. Uh, what, what, is now the re what is the opinion of people about the European Union? Is that fully translated in the uh, electoral uh, results as we have today? So that's an important issue. But I come uh, to the, the Eurozone. I think on, on Eurozone what we need is um, that uh, we need a management, a government of this Eurozone with a fiscal capacity. That is, in my opinion, the most important. Uh, a fiscal capacity, and on a fiscal capacity, uh, normally you can also yeah, develop uh, loans and produce loans. So I'm not, I, I think that uh, what is not realistic is to think that we can mutualize the debt of the past. And also Macron has already said, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for a fiscal capacity, who is important, several uh, uh, percentages of uh, the eurozone, uh, the GDP of the eurozone, and based on that you can then develop 
uh, 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 fiscal capacity, uh, loans, uh, investment, and so on. That is what he's looking for. And that can be done under, in a type of euro uh, securities uh, in the future. And I think that's the way forward. The second thing what we need is what yeah, every uh, normal uh, currency authority has, uh, that is a treasury, uh, a minister of finance who is dealing uh, with it. And the third is the most sensitive one, that is yeah, how to be sure that, um, uh, the, uh, that there is not again a division in the eurozone between the economic policies and, and the results of these economic policies, what, what we have uh, uh, seen uh, the last uh, 10 years uh, with a number of countries. The proposal, in my uh, opinion, the best proposal is what we call the convergence goal. That is that it is not necessary that all member states do exactly the same. The problems are different. The pension system, for example, in the Netherlands is a completely different pension system as the pension system in a number of other countries. So it's not the European Union who have to tell what type of reform of that pension system needs to be. But what is the task of the European Union is to define what are on the social and what on the level of finance are the minimum requirements that are needed. So that the system is social sustainable and that the system is financial sustainable. That is the task of the Union. How you do it with a repartition system, a, 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 a capitalization system, a mixed system and so on, that is the authority of of, uh, the, of, the, of the nation states, we're going to not, but the framework as such. So, look, I compare it a little bit as a motorway. The convergence code is a motorway. You can take the left of the motorway or the right of the motorway, maybe more that policy or that, but you cannot go out of the motorway. And there, there has to be a room of maneuver for the countries to do so, but going into the same direction. And then with this fiscal capacity and with this treasury, that makes sense because, let's be honest, I have never seen a single currency without any real authority behind state. There exist many states who have no own currency and were using the currency of another uh, country, but there don't exist a currency without the state authority behind. And that is also the reason that is... So I think that was a fundamental mistake we have made in the past. It's to think that with the stability and growth pack and with a number of rules, that's sufficient to deal with the problem. That's not true. Certainly not in Europe when then uh, everybody has an interest maybe not uh, to apply uh, the, uh, the rules. I look to the other side of the Atlantic and I see that in the end of the 18th century, before the dollar was introduced, they did uh, a federal state. They had uh, treasury certificates that were introduced. Yeah, that was the big battle of Hamilton. who won the battle and then... Um, Jefferson uh, received then as, uh, uh, as uh, compensation Washington uh, as capital. Some people are saying maybe it's also a solution here in Europe. <laughs> maybe in Berlin uh, you do then the capital. And then... No, okay, that's uh, a joke, 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 joke. I'm, f I'm, I'm from Belgium, so certainly a joke. Uh, but um, what, what they mean, uh, they did first of all all this, and then in the beginning of the 19th century, I don't know what, 1804, uh, they introduced the dollar. We are far more intelligent. We start, and the rest can come spontaneously. And then after a, a certain time, we say, oh, shit, we don't have this and that and that and that. And that. But no, it's, it's typical for Europe. 
And we have to stop that mentality. We launch a policy, Schengen. And then we say, oh, with the migration flow, hey, we don't have a border management at the outside. Why? You normally, if you start to abolish free movement inside a territory, you start to organize your outside border management. No? That seems to me, in my opinion, the logic. And that has to change. There is far too, the, the idea is, up, we go forward with an idea, oh, the rest will follow. You know, there is not enough uh, support for it now, but it's going to come later on. It doesn't work like that. And it cannot longer work like that when we make reforms in the Union. Juncker, Macron, I don't see personally big difference between both. Only on the question, everybody on board, and Macron said, yeah, maybe uh, we have... Uh, uh, a, a, a first group and then a second group that are more associated members. May I say it like that? Uh, associated uh, members. And that's an idea that is already in the air for, uh, for, for a long time. My preference is that everybody comes in the, in, the, in the core group. That I like the most. Because I think there is a fundamental problem, I have indicated it, that is that you cannot continue with the European Union where you have so many opt-ins, opt-outs, earmarks, exceptions, rebates, that you cannot longer explain how the system uh, is working. Okay. And but last the, point... The guy up here was saying uh, that uh, that system may be more flexible and meet public opinion. Well, look to public opinion. Uh, public opinion, where we do the Eurobarometer, on every policy that we are, as, in, under, the, under uh, the form of a question, launched to public opinion in Eurobarometer, you have between 70 and 80% of the citizens in Europe who ask for more European action. The reason why they vote for nationalist and populist is not, oh, I don't like Europe, it's because if it doesn't work, if Europe doesn't deliver, it's so easy then for politicians to say, see, it doesn't work, let's fall back to nationalist solutions. While everybody knows that every chance that we have today, if it's climate change, is migration flows, is it fight against terrorists, is transnational and can only be, in fact, so, uh, uh, solved on the transnational level. Okay, let's go to some more questions. There's a lady uh, here, please. Okay, uh, we're happy to have a question. I've been a public health practitioner most of my life, so I've used EU legislation on environmental and social protection. I doubt that you will win people's hearts by proposing a, a programme of institutional reform. I think you will win people's hearts by demonstrating protection for citizens. So, there, is the European Parliament ready to offer those guarantees to British citizens in Europe, regardless of what Theresa May is prepared to do for Europeans here, as an example? And also, okay. can we think about your talk to split allegiances and multiple identities and asylum policy? One of the ways that Europe has lost support is by the sadistic treatment of migrants in detention in Turkey, in Libya, and I know very well that this country has its own detention gulag. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I'm going to take the gentleman right to the very back, please. Guy Falkenbridge, Reuters. Um, it's probably a stupid question, but I just wonder if you could give us your gut instinct. Uh, will Britain and the European Union be able to reach a deal over Brexit? Okay, okay. Um, it's good that you announced it as a stupid question. 
we're running out I of time. I liberate myself for an answer. So, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we're running out of time. So if you could answer those two questions. Uh, no, I, I have already reacted on the, on the second one. On the first one, uh, the, 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 the issue of... Uh, uh, of, of st uh, on standards, uh, social, uh, environmental, and so on. In our resolution, we have said that it concerns also the standards, and that these standards need to be uh, continued to be uh, applied for those who want uh, uh, to enter goods, uh, to uh, uh, do activities in the European Union. We are going to not use uh, the whole Brexit uh, negotiation to undermine uh, the environmental and social standards uh, we have. Uh, I should say. Uh, um, that the, uh, on the country. Um, but then I want to react to something that you say. Yeah, you're going to not... I, I hear that from time to time with institutional proposals to convince the people and so on and so on. And that's true. But it is crucial that I'm talking about that because political institutions are the basis for a lot of things. Bad political institutions... Uh, produce bad results. Good political institutions produce good results. We need to know that. It is not like, oh yeah, political institutions, that's something for politicians and we don't like that. No, it does matter. One of the books that I like the most uh, and that has been written the last years is a book, Why Nations Fail, of Akamuglu and Robinson. And in Why Nations Fail... Yeah, the basic idea uh, in, uh, in, in, in that book is that uh, it's not uh, the economic stupids, it's politics stupids. That's the main. And for a politician, that's a fantastic book, naturally, that uh, we <laughs> matter. So, uh, and what it mainly say that if you don't have the right institutions, not the property rights, not the rule of law, not this. And it starts with a fantastic story, Nogales, that is a city on the border between Mexico and uh, the U.S., and it's really on the ball. So the north of the, uh, of the, of the, of the city lies in, 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 in the U.S. And the south is in, uh, uh, in, in Mexico. And they are living the same people. They are family from each other. They ate the same hot Mexican food. So no difference. They have the same DNA. But in the north, they are five times richer than in the south. And why? Because in the north, there is certainty, property rights, uh, rule of law, democracy. And in the, in the south of the city, there is corruption, corruption, corruption. And that makes the difference. So political institutions matter. It's not true that it is a little game of constitutionalists, of, uh, of, 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 of politicians who have nothing else to do than to think about, about... No. Good institutions produce good results. Bad institutions, bad results. And that is the problem in the Union for the moment. Not that our founding fathers has made mistakes. They didn't make a mistake because in the 50s they had everything in place. It's fantastic. Uh, the reason why I wrote the last book about, uh, about uh, Europe's last chance was for me, bad student at the university certainly, the discovery of the von Prantano constitution of the 50s on the European Union. I thought, yeah, the European Union started uh, with the Treaty of Rome in 1957 and so on and so on. No, no, not true. The European Union started before with the idea, after the success of the European state and co-community, on which I have to tell you and remind you that Winston Churchill wanted to participate, but he lost the vote in the Commons with a few uh, uh, votes. Uh, 
it started at that moment and there was the agreement between the six founding fathers and the representatives of the six founding fathers with unanimity and five abstentions, not bad huh? in politics, unanimity and five abstentions, to start with the constitution and with that communitarian uh, proposal that I'm talking about. European defense community, a European government with maximum 15, so what Macron says, that's the, 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 the number, 15, comes out of this first constitution of the 50s, of von Brantano. Von Brantano was a little bit uh, 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 the, the, uh, yeah, the competitor of, of Adenauer, and Adenauer said, you do European politics, I will do German politics. So a little bit like that. And he is, was also one of the founding fathers of the Grundgesetz in Germany. So there is an enormous uh, uh, resemblance uh, about, about. But everything was in. It's fantastic. I, I was reading it and I said, well, what we have done in 50 years? <laughs> what, why we don't have it? And the, the real uh, story of the European Union is it didn't start with a success. It started with a failure. The failure to go through with this constitution in the European defense community in the French National Assembly in 1954 were against the will of these 70 people, representatives of the six states. That defense union was not accepted. Also a little bit because at that moment there was a new prime minister, Pierre Mendes France, and it was a project of his predecessor and he didn't launch a confidence vote in the National Assembly. What normally you do as prime minister from time, you have a project, you say, now confidence vote. It's also happening in Britain, I think, eh? yeah, from time. Uh, and and that, that failed, or he didn't really engage in this. So well, we, we have nothing to invent of that. There was already European Parliament foreseen in 1954. We have it only since 1979. And it became then uh, the Treaty of Rome with the internal, uh, with uh, the uh, uh, customs union mainly. Because we, we failed to do the, the big leap forward. But I think we have no choice. We have to go back to the initial idea of the founding fathers because it was not uh, like a dream that they have put that on paper and, and, and put that in a, in a project of constitution. It was because of necessity that they did it. Because the lesson they learned. And they said it's the only way to, uh, uh, to go forward uh, in, in, in the future. But maybe yeah, okay. it's now the moment to do so. What was impossible in the 50s can maybe be possible now. Okay, thank you. I'm afraid we are out of time, but uh, just, before, just before... I'm sorry? My question. Oh, you found it stupid, your question. Ah, oh, <laughs> sorry, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> briefly, please, briefly. Just, just briefly. Sorry? You won't find it difficult to answer. So. No, no. Can you repeat your question? Because really, maybe I didn't. Do you think that the European Union and Britain will find agreement on Brexit so they will be able to do a deal? That's the, that's the assumption that I have. It is in that, uh, 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 towards that that we work and that uh, the withdrawal agreement uh, will be uh, done uh, in... Uh, uh, March 2019 it means that there has to be an agreement, in fact, in uh, October, November, because then this agreement uh, will go uh, to, the, um, uh, to the European Parliament, and we need uh, four or five months uh, to go uh, to uh, the uh, consent procedure. Okay, I think that uh, presentation has been so good, we should recognize it with the huge generosity of the LSE by offering you a gift.
Now, I come from Yorkshire, and generosity has to be tempered uh, in that context. So there's generosity and there's Yorkshire generosity. So please do appreciate the gift I'm about to give you, which is an LSE baseball cap. <laughs>